All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Ariel Katz, who is a co-founder of H1. Ariel, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks. Going well. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on and learn all about what H1 is. And with that, let's just, let's just kind of dive in. What is H1? H1, we built a global comprehensive database of every single doctor in the world, uh, which is used by the healthcare ecosystem for educating the market, generally used by pharma, biotech, and med device to educate doctors about the therapies that they're developing. So a couple questions. Um, so first, I'm kind of curious on the data collection, if you're open to like sharing, that's incredible that you have a whole database um, full of doctors and that information. I'm curious, like, do you, are you building that yourself? Are you scraping the internet? I guess, how do you, how, like, where does the data come from? I'm curious. Yeah, so it, that's our like special sauce where we have a database of about 8 million doctors updated every single week with every single piece of information you could ever want about them. Uh, we collect that in a variety of ways. It ranges from scraping websites. We scrape millions and millions of hospital, university, private practice, Q care center, various websites. I scraping that every single day, pulling down repositories of research scholarship and clinical work, PubMed, clinicaltrials.gov, and mashing that all together to create one clean database of every single doctor. And that's kept up to date. Um, so we have a team, a global team. We have about 100 people working on this, keeping the data up to date every single day. Uh, and that's our special sauce. Imagine LinkedIn for doctors, everything you want to know about each doctor, but kept up to date without a doctor needing to touch it. Super cool, super powerful. Uh, so that's what we built. And who would you say um, is the biggest like persona of, of like the user? So I feel like a lot of different people could, could like that information, right? That's really powerful info. But who do you find that like it needs it most? Or I guess who's your ideal customer? So it, it's the pharma, biotech, and med device space where a lot of the work that they do is educating the market. And so the market for them are doctors uh, and healthcare professionals about their therapies. And this isn't selling it. They're not, these are not sales reps. They, pharma invests a lot in just education, billions, I'm talking tens of billions of dollars in educating doctors about how their drug actually saves a patient's life or improves a patient's life. And that's what our, our platform's mostly used for. Today. So correct, correct, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but so is it pretty much like a way where there is information, like new information out about uh, a, a disease or a drug or something like that? It is like a, this is a way to get that information to whoever wants it or like disseminates that to every doctor it, or I, yeah, can you kind of clarify it's, that? It's, it, yeah, I'll, I'll be more specific. So I'll give like an analogy that everyone will understand. If you wanted to reach women between the ages of 18 and 23 who are interested in makeup and Kylie Jenner uses your lipstick and says this is the lipstick to use, I'm sure most women will know that very quickly. If you're developing a drug in bladder cancer, which is in phase two of clinical trials, you've seen that it actually cures people with bladder cancer, what's the quickest way to reach them? And believe it or not, the concept of Kylie Jenner exists within healthcare. It's not Kylie Jenner, but it is the person who probably invented the first therapy for bladder cancer who's located at uh, Harvard University or at Memorial Sloan Kettering. 
And the, the issue is pharmaceutical companies actually don't understand who Kylie Jenner is. Everyone knows Kylie Jenner. But if you're developing a product, you don't know who that is. And so you would use H1 to first identify who those people are uh, to help educate the market. And then the second piece is keeping up to date with it. It takes 10 years and $3 billion to bring a drug to market. 10 years is a long time. And so it, things change over 10 years. Who is the new rising star? If you're trying to launch a drug in China, who is the Kylie Jenner in China for bladder cancer? Very difficult questions to answer. Uh, but if you could just log into H1, type in bladder cancer filter by any country you're interested in, find who that person is instantly, solves a ton of problems, takes a ton of time, and you keep up to date with it in H1. That's generally how it's used. Okay, that's very helpful. I have a few more, not necessarily use case questions, but just like just general questions. So um, it, could you almost say, I only make a comparison that it keeps going along like the Kylie Jenner uh, example, which this might be a little left field, but um, you know, in marketing and media, you got the Kylie Jenners, you got the Logan Pauls, you got like influencers that like own their thing, right? You got uh, Casey Neistat video, New York, you know, you know, et cetera. Would you kind of say that H1 is like categorizing the quote unquote influencers of, uh, of, of health um, and can making them easily searchable. Of course, they're not influencers, but they are in their own industry, right? Like, would you say that's like, that's pretty much what you're doing? It is. It's like getting an investment from the best investor. It's like Peter Thiel or Reid Hoffman or Elon Musk saying, this is a great tech company. You'd probably look at that company. Uh, and it's the same thing here. If someone who you trust, who the market trusts says, this product actually saves patients' lives and I cannot wait for it to come to market. That's like a huge thing. Um, it's easy in a lot of industries to identify who those influencers are. Um, they're on like social media and whatever. It's not true for doctors. Doctors are very different. Doctors are influential in like academic societies, medical societies, scientific publications, all these various uh, different mediums. And so we're pulling that all that data together. So that's how I like the layman should think about the general use case. So if a Insta if a influencer on the internet today has, you know, has following on TikTok, they have Instagram, maybe they have a book and they have like a YouTube series with whoever's whoever, you know, what would be the equivalent for these doctors? What what I mean by that is like what assets do they have that make them influencers in their own in their own yeah, realm? That's a great question. So when you think about like social media influencers, you need like a lot of Instagram followers or Twitter. When you think about influential doctors, it ranges across the spectrum. You could be influential in treating patients. Uh, and in that case, you would have like great patient outcomes. You could be influential in studying and developing drugs. And then you'd be really influential by publishing the, uh, breakthrough science and that science being cited by other scientists. You could be influential in developing drugs and then you could be really, you could have a lot of successful clinical trials. You could be influential in your like community and those are academic societies. Uh, and you could be speaking up, you could be the keynote speaker at the American Society for Clinical Oncology and you're the big shot there. So there's all these mediums where you try and look for different influencers from like ones who study early stage science to ones who treat patients to ones who are strong in like the community and various positions. And kind of, this might be a different use case for each one, but I'm curious based on kind of my own situation, is it also, could people also hypothetically use H1 to find a doctor who specializes in a potential rare disorder or illness or like the world foremost expert on this thing that someone has? So we use it, like people that work at H1 use it. Like I've used it. 
And uh, Ian, who's my other co-founder, actually used it too. We haven't exposed it to patients yet. Uh, we've been talking a lot about that, but we, we get asked that question because there's not a great experience for patients yet. You go to like ZocDoc and that's like the same as Yelp, but that's not really what you want to know. I mean, that's like one piece, but like you want to actually know like, is this the person that's great and not the people like him? Somewhat, this could be the same, but not necessarily. So we haven't exposed it yet to patients, but we're talking about doing that. Yeah, definitely. Well, put me on your list for that when when you decide to talk to patients. I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So let's hear about a little bit of the backstory. It's a very, I feel like, feel like unique product and something that it seems like you're you're very hyper verticalized, which is great. Where did you get the idea from and why, why are you working on H1? Yeah, so my first company was called Research Connection. Started uh, seven years ago or something. And uh, the original idea for that company was to help undergraduate students get involved with academic research, so working in a lab with a professor when they're in their undergrad studies. There's no money in that. Students have no money and professors have no money. We then had to pivot to helping prospective graduate students finding prospective faculty mentors for their PhD. So I am an undergrad. I'm interested in neuromodulation. I want to find the foremost expert to do my PhD with. It doesn't exist. There's, like, if you want to find the best college you go to, you go to U.S. News World Report and you find Stanford, Harvard, MIT, whatever. If you want to find the top doctor for neuromodulation, if you literally want to find her right now, it'd take you like 45 minutes and you probably won't be right. Uh, and so we thought, what if we built that for doctors, or for professors? Uh, and that actually worked. We got hundreds and thousands of, of like users. It was actually really cool. A lot of international folks, people in Korea, China, trying to learn about U.S. professors. Um, so that was going well. We then expanded to helping medical schools track their own research. Uh, and we ended up selling that business. Uh, I, but when we were doing that, we learned a lot about how to collect this data, why it's important. And companies started reaching out to us, like GE. Um, we were like, and they were like, I want to find out who's in your database. And we said, go to the university website. Well, they said, it's a piece of crap. Can't use it. Uh, and we said, oh, okay. We didn't really do anything about it. But then when we sold that business, had the idea of what if we did the same thing, like collected all the data, did it bigger and better, deeper, and we sold it to industry. Like, private companies, pharma, biotech, med device, large industry, foundations, government, there must be something there. Uh, and that's how we all started. That was about two years ago. So I want to circle back to the data side. And uh, just to preface, if I'm asking questions that like, make you reveal your secret sauce, like, can feel free to, to, to yeah. not answer, etc. But I, I'm kind of curious, the reason is I feel like in my head, I'm comparing what you're doing. Um, to Golden, but Golden is very, very wide, um, and you're very, very, very vertical. But like what Golden does is like they pretty much have AI bots just like crawling the internet 24-7, making sure their stuff is updated. I'm curious, like for you, uh, you might have already answered this, but I just didn't understand. How, like, how are you able to keep the information as updated as possible without the doctors updating? Like, is it AI? Is it humans? Is it something else? Like, how, how can you do that? Both. Um, so a lot can get done with technology now. Ian, Ian's background, my co-founder, he runs the data side of the business. He's the, the wizard behind this. He's built very large data sets before in his life that are used by multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, but the wizardry is having tech enabled, like tech enabled with humans doing this work. So if you were to scrape Harvard's website, MIT's website, Stanford's website, Georgetown and Howard University and Mount Sinai, I'd say 80% of the people have unique names. Not a problem. 20% will have overlap in names. You need technology to identify if it's the same person. 
What if they have the same specialty? What if two people are in geriatrics? Now you're starting to get in trouble. Same name, same specialty. Let's look at their med school now. Uh, when they graduated. Oh, crap. They both graduated in 1985. All right. So you got same name, same specialty, same school. Uh, all right. Where'd they get their PhD? They happen to be at the same university. They're just out of luck. Like uh, no technology in the world today can ever solve that problem. You have a human check there. Uh, but for the 80% where there's no overlap, you're pretty good to go. And so that's like a very basic example about how we do. We have sort of like a funnel where tech can get us only so far and then humans handle the exceptions related to it. But the, the, the 3% of our data set changes a month. 3% of 8 million is a very, very large number. And we're talking 8 million doctors. We're talking 300 million peer-reviewed publications that we need to map onto these doctors. 400,000 clinical trials, hundreds of thousands of grants, billions of rows of procedure data that these doctors are doing. And so the exception amount just continues to get larger as we add in more data sets. So we always decrease the amount of exceptions that occur, but as we add in more data sets, more exceptions come out. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. You definitely sound like someone who knows what they're doing and is probably going to build like a pretty big company with this, which is cool. You can kind of just tell sometimes when someone's talking, I don't know. I, I, I like you just, you just get it. You understand this and you're, and you're, um, I don't know. It's just cool. But one, one thing, one thing I'm curious about is how, let me back up. I know very little about this industry, like from the pharma side, from the, from your customer side. Um, so I'm going to ask some like basic questions. How, what would a pharmacy, why would they pay you money to get access to this data set? Obviously, it's like probably like a very basic question, but I can't even, I don't even know why someone would want the data. Although any clean data is very valuable data. So like, what's their use case? Yeah, so there's a lot of these macro, I'll, I'll talk about like the business problem. Then I'll talk about, there's like the strategic, how does this fit into their strategy? Then how does it fit into day to day? Plays into both. When a pharma company is developing a product, you can't sell it until it's approved by the government. It's illegal, like selling weed in Florida. You can't do it. But if weed was legal in Florida, you could sell it. And so it's the same thing for drugs. Very simple concept. You can't sell it until it's approved. But you could educate people about it. And so pharma has realized you shouldn't sell it before because you go to jail. They could start to talk about how this has been tested in humans during clinical trials and look at all the data about this. It's incredible. It's actually curing breast cancer. It's actually curing eczema. Um, and so what pharma companies realize, if they start to educate the market pre-approval, the amount of revenue and sales, once it gets approved, like skyrockets, like 40 times higher, something like a crazy number like that. And, the first, and you only have 20 years to sell to commercialize it, then your patent expires. So you have 20 years, to, it's a very unique industry. You have 20 years to sell a thing. If you miss a year, it's 1 20th of your revenue, 5%. It's a pretty high amount. You miss two years, 10%. You just lost 10% of revenue. These drugs normally make a billion dollars a year in revenue. You're supposed to a billion dollars. If you educate the market before you launch the drug, you're going to earn that. And so what these pharma companies you realize is we got to educate the market about what we're doing. We got to talk about it. And we got to talk to the people who know the market. We got to get feedback from them. And if they like it, they're going to educate everyone that they, because they look up, people look up to them. And so that's the use case. And so why do you need the data? You need to find the right, you need to, first, you need to solve that business problem, educate the market. Then you need to, how do I do that? Got to find the right people where they're going to give you feedback about what you should change about your product. So the right doctors will say that this is how it should be treated. This is how it should be injected, et cetera, et cetera. So you talk to the key opinion leaders, leading thought, leading influencing doctors. Once they're into it and they're like, holy crap, they just talk about it everywhere. They publish about it. They talk about it at conferences. They might tweet about it. And then everyone starts to generate this buzz about this product and cannot wait for it to launch because it's going to increase this patient's life by 15 years. It's crazy. Um, and so 
that's generally the way it works. The data is used to identify the people, keep up to date with the people, uh, see if they're working with their competitors, see how they're influential, see the ones that are seeing patients at universities, at medical centers, and keep up to date with them. In parallel to, to startups, you're kind of like enabling distribution for pharma, pharma companies. Like you're like, you can have a product, but if you don't have this, you, no one knows that that product exists, then like, you know, you're shit out of luck and you're enabling, you're the gateway to distribution and people will pay a lot of money for distribution. So that makes, that makes tons of sense. Yeah. Is there, yeah, sorry. I oh, know. Go ahead. Oh, cool. So is there any is that would you is that what would you would say the is the killer use case like distribution for people that want access to doctors are there any other use cases that you're focusing on or is that is that the big one uh that's the big one that's how we started i mean we're fairly young we launched our product a year ago started the company two years ago and we're crushing it since then i mean it's never existed a database of every doctor in the world ranked by their disease area has never existed um so that's cool. And so we're crushing it in that respect. Um, there are many other use cases we're interested in. Helping hospitals, helping patients, helping medical centers, helping non-for-profit foundations who are studying diseases, the government, all these use cases that we're starting to explore as we're really growing fast in one space, want to continue to expand to others. Yeah, that's, that's an answer from someone who, who's focused. I, one of my big things when I was starting my company was like, I didn't have the best focus and it's ultimately what like led to it. It's like, Oh, we could do this. We could do that. We could do this. Um, I'm actually curious. How, do you just have the, the muscle? Like, is it, is it hard for you to stay, to maintain one focus versus all these other opportunities? How do you think about it? Like not pursuing other things, although they could be good because you already picked something. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I had the same experience as you. In, the, in my first company, it's hard to focus because nothing, and the reason, the reason I realized that is because nothing is working. When you sign two contracts a week, you don't really have time to do the next thing. Like you think about it when you're like walking or riding a bike or like walking your dog or whatever, but like no real time to do it. And like now we're at the point where the only time there is to like think about that next market, which we're thinking a lot about, is like if we hired someone to do it because none of us have time to do anything because we're signing contract, many contracts a week. Like that problem. Yeah, it's a it's a good problem to have, and I actually can relate. Like, I, yeah. thinking back, like when things when things are going well, like why would you think want to do anything else when when things are going well? Um, yeah. I guess an, an, another thought I have is you you mentioned that this hasn't really existed yet, and you're you're building it. So would you? And it sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're pretty much like an optimization phase, according to like Scott Belsky in one of his books. He talks about survival. And it talks about optimizing and you're either surviving or optimizing. Like it's kind of, it's kind of binary and it sounds like to me you're optimizing. Um, how, yeah. how, how do you think, I just, how do you think about optimizing and making sure the growth rate that you're growing at or not necessarily growth rate, but like the metrics you're trying to hit are as good as they can be. What are like, how do you think about just being the best you can be? It sounds corny, but it, it's like, it, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on just the optimization phase on making sure you're optimizing the most you can? It's like an impossible thing, honestly. It's so hard. Like, that's the thing we think about all the time. Like, what is the next piece we need to fill that we don't have? Do we have a head of sales? Do we have a head of product? Do we have a head of tech? And we have a lot of those pieces. Um, we had a finance to help with our fundraising and all these other things. Uh, when Ian and I think about optimization, it's mostly like, 
do we have the right people in the right roles that could help scale the company from uh, I don't know, 10 million to 100 million, 5 million, 50 million, like get that type of jump. Um, and that's how we think about optimizing. Like how do we, and are we in a position where if we hired five more amazing salespeople, our revenue is going to grow about 10 times? And we think we are. Um, and so it's really about hiring, getting the right people, getting the right leaders, and trusting them, empowering them, and communicating the vision, our values, and empowering the right leaders. So I really think about optimizing and scaling. I feel like there is, I mean, obviously there's kind of multiple stages of a startup, of course. Like when you first get started, no one's, you're not focusing on hiring, you're focused on finding product market fit, building something, making sure users like it, et cetera. And like, I feel like I've, I pretty much touched the tip of that. Like I scaled a company to like 25K a month, which was good. And I felt like inklings of product market fit, but like for various reasons, didn't hit it and didn't hit like the hiring phase. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious, like how do you know when you're, it's time to leave the customer development phase and the, the tinkering phase and go to a great, like it's time to hire great people phase. Um, is there a moment where that makes sense to make the switch? I think we waited too long, to be honest with H1, where we hit product market fit, I would say, in early 2019. And um, it took us, And in this past summer, we should have hit the scaling phase. But now it's like February, and we're starting to do it. And so I think we waited too long for uh, when do we get to that phase. It was very, in hindsight, it's like so obvious. Like, holy crap, you're signing multi-contracts with multiple contracts a week for hundreds of thousands of dollars with the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. There must be something here. Nobody's fired you. Everyone's renewing. Huh, that's interesting. Like, in hindsight, it's the clearest thing in the world. But when you're in it, you're like, oh, my God, I got to deliver. Oh, my God, I got to do this. And you don't think it's time to hire a head of sales. It's time to hire a head of customer support. It's time to hire a head of whatever. Uh, the, the turning point was just like, we signed like no contracts two years ago. Like it was really hard. This year, last 2019 was crazy uh, where we did hit product market fit. Uh, I think the turning point was we didn't lose any sales pitches. Like a few like, uh, and like that was very clear. All these things are so clear in hindsight. We didn't lose any sales pitches. Everyone was signing a contract with us. We were knocking out all of our competitors. Everyone's renewing with us. Everyone's expanding with us. Maybe it's time to scale. Uh, we waited too long, but that was, they were so obvious to us now in hindsight. And obviously the activities you spend your time on pre-product market fit are, are much different than post-product market fit. And no one, at least in, in, in my experience, especially with a lot of my friends that I would say are pre-product market fit, we're like, we're not really thinking that much about hiring, but it comes to a point where like all you do is hire. That's like, that's literally pretty much your job. Um, yeah. Is there, when you hit, now, you know, you're scaling now, so it sounds like you're doing some hiring now. How have you educated yourself on, on just hiring best practices? Or did you figure this out in your last company? I guess, I guess how do you think about hiring and being the best you can at it? I'm miserable at hiring. Um, but I'm good at hiring people when someone who I trust tells me they're good. So it's a lot easier to do that than hire someone who you've never met before who you don't know. Um, so learn that lesson the hard way. Uh, and th- th- I guess the biggest lesson that I learned, about this too, when you're like five people or like five came to you with an idea and you're my good friend, I have like, I have the best idea in the world. You're the only stupid one enough to come and work with me. No one who has a full-time job will come and work. They don't even know me. But like, if you're my friend. You might be dumb enough to be like, oh yeah, I quit my job, pay me 120K and I'll come work on this. It might be cool and fun, whatever. 
Um, and so you, you generally are friends and you like each other. And then you probably get one or two other people as your scaling gets slightly the idea. You might raise half a million bucks in angel funding or something, or 250, whatever it is. And so you're with people you really like, and collaboration is high, communication is high, you're working all the time, you're really passionate. Then you hit a scale where maybe you raise a seed round of a million bucks, two million bucks, and you hire professionals. And you hire people who like did that role before, that function before. But they might not be the best culture fit, but they did that function. And that's what we did. We hired like seven professionals for each one. And it was the worst thing ever. There, none of them were working here today. Zero. It was like another year. Like they didn't last six months uh, because they weren't as passionate. They weren't a core culture fit. They weren't adaptable, which you need to be even when you're 10 or 12 people. And uh, they just couldn't learn fast enough. They couldn't keep up with the speed we wanted to move at. None of them are here. So we said, screw that. We're going to hire people who are culture fits. Uh, and that's worked really well. Um, and so like, do I care if this person sold to farm before? No. Have they sold anything? I don't really care. Are they cultured and they're going to learn and they're going to adapt? Yeah. All right, let's bring them on board. They'll, be, they'll work out. Those are the people that work out the best at H1. They could have switched from customer success to sales. It could be product engineering, product to customer success, uh, whatever it is, account management to ops. But if they're a culture fit, they can manage and do the rest. And so that's the one key lesson that we learned in terms of hiring. Other one is just like hire from your network. Our network's massive and we've, thank God, we have a big enough network. Uh, but it's so hard to hire good people cold like i think of like two people we had like a hundred like two people where it's worked out <laughs> uh, the rest networks the best so do you have any advice for someone let's say they're building a very let's say it's a high potential company let's say it has potential to be you know, a massive company but they're in nebraska like they don't they don't have the network um is there it, it, what what would you suggest for them for hiring or is it just get the network like like what, what does someone without a massive network the, do the network the network is doesn't even need to be um our vp of engineering is in north carolina just hired a product guy who's an sf but our hq is in new york we have our senior product engineer in frostburg maryland we have all these people remote so the network doesn't necessarily need to be in person it's easier in sf in new york no question but like it's there's online communities there's subreddits there's hacker news community there's blogging community honestly create the network and you'll find people that are the github community like git community and see if the ones that are contributing to open source for the technical co-founder do it that way if you're posting on like linkedin i'm looking for a co-founder you're going to get someone who sucks because the person who's good is already busy um it's like really don't do that it won't work if you actually start doing things and start contributing in some way um, you'll meet people and you'll meet them just by doing that. And that's the best way to do it. And you mentioned, um, I don't know if this was just an example or, or your situation. Um, so, well, let me just ask, did you originally, did you co-found this company with friends or with like business connections that you trusted? Um, or is it in the middle? Uh, became good friends out of it. Of course. It's a funny story. So I sold my first company, and then I want to go, there's a good book. It's a good book, by the way, called Shantram. You ever hear of it? No, Shantram? No. Shantram. It's about no. this guy who broke out of prison in the UK, fled to India, wrote a book. It's like a thousand page book about his life in India as an alias, but it's really him living in India, running away from the UK government and has to live through various aliases. It's an awesome book. And he goes through all these adventures in India, can't stay in one place long because he escaped prison. So it's like a real, I don't know how we got it published. That's the second 
maybe it's online. I don't even know. Amazing book. I read it and I was like, I got to go to all the places this guy went to in India. I'm going to go to India for a year. Ends up not being a year, uh, various reasons. But when I told some of the guys from the first company, Hamlet in India, one of them said, oh, you should meet my buddy Ian. I think he went through India for a while. He might give some tips. I was like, okay, whatever. I'm leaving in a month or two. I'll go meet up with Ian. I went to Ian, got coffee, said, oh, you're going to India. I have an office in India. I should meet my co-founder there. He's an awesome guy. Uh, he, I, at the time, Ian was running a different company. I went there, went to Hyderabad, had a good time there, met some of the guys, came back, and then started working on some projects. Um, and then Ian and I worked on some side projects together, which was good for about a year or two. Just got to know each other, got to know how each other work and all that stuff. And then after about a year and a half of just like hanging out and working on a couple of things, we were like, let's, like, let's do this. And that was November of 2017. That's actually really interesting. So for you, it seems like that almost like project, like working on projects is, is a good way to figure out if you could work on a startup together or a good way to know if you shouldn't work on a startup together because it's low risk. Consulting to hire is the best thing in the world. I wish everyone can do that. Not everyone can afford to do that. Everyone has different life situations. But I think you consult to hire. It's worked out for us like all the time because because if you're good. Two month consulting project. Let's try it out. See if we like you. See if you like us. If you like us and we like you, you're going to get higher. When you say, um, so this is something I don't understand because I don't think I've, I've, as I mentioned, I haven't been in a hiring phase before. So when you say that some people can't afford consulting to hire, what do you mean by that? Because if they're hiring, can't they, I mean, they have money to afford on hire? Can you explain that? it's It's the other direction where like, we're interviewing this woman who works at Google now, right? She's not going to quit her job at Google to consult for us for two months to see if we might hire her like a crazy high paying job at Google, she might not be able to afford it or she has a family to pay for or whatever it is. Um, so they might, might not be able to afford it. But in the situation where it's like perfectly aligns in the universe where they could and whatever, then the best. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I guess another question is because you're so deeply networked, um, do you, I mean, do you hire people? Like, do you hire people from like Google's and Apple's and Facebook's and like these like big companies? And, and if so, like, yeah, yeah sorry. Like, depends, do, do you, do you hire the from function. them? Yeah, we do. It depends on the function. We just hired someone who works at Facebook. It depends on the function. You don't want to hire a salesman from a big company because they sell themselves. If you hire someone from Google, you don't need to sell anything at Google. It's Google. Google sells itself. I buy Google and I have a salesman never spoken to me. Same for you. Uh, you don't want to hire someone from those companies on the sales and customer success side. It's too easy for them. You want someone who's actually been in the grind and in the trenches and have to sell something when no one wanted to talk to, no one's going to respond to, and how did you sell them? So you hire people who have no brand on their resume for sales, but crushed it still. Uh, on engineering, you want to hire from these big companies. It depends on the role, but like um, I like engineers from these big companies and engineers and pe- product people from these big companies because they're generally good best practices. Uh, the pain point is if they're not able to move like as nimble and fast and as hectic as it is in a startup compared to a big company. But I do like if someone has a big company experience to be able to come in with best practices, have a big company network. But on the customer success, any client facing side, I hate it. It never works out. So if you're trying to convince someone from Facebook, you know, like this, this person that, that you mentioned, you don't obviously don't have to mention the name, but like you're trying to convince someone from Facebook to join you or Apple or whatever, you know, is it a, 
um, what's that like? Is it is it a long sales process, or is it a, or do they just kind of get it, or does it just depend on the person? Depends on the person, depends on the role. I mean, we're doing crazy cool stuff. We're going to change the world of healthcare with like verifiable do- doctor information. It's going to change the world for patients, pharma, biotech, hospital, health systems, universities, medical centers, medical schools. And we're going to do that over the next five years. We're going to be a multi-billion dollar company and you're going to have a high impact here. And if you're able to grind um, and we're going to push you and it's going to be the hardest you've ever worked and you're going to learn more than you've ever learned, you're going to have more opportunity than you've ever had, this is the right place. If you want to work nine to five and have a good resume with some big company brand, go and do that. You're not working nine to five here. You're working like nine to nine all day, all the time, on weekends, always on call. We're trying to achieve a dream. It's like, that's not such a hard thing to sell, um, given we have like traction and we're growing incredibly fast towards that. And so it depends on the role. Um, some people don't want what I just described. And it's like all the power to them. But the people that want that, that like want to be pushed and want to be around people that are constantly trying to like do as best as they can and will tell you when you're not and you'll tell them when they're not. That's like the people that fit into each one. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of people criticize the, I guess like the, in China, they call it like the 996 culture where it's like, you know, work, pretty much work a fuck ton. And I understand why they may criticize it for themselves. Like, I don't, like, I don't want to work 12 hours a day, which I mean, I'm not talking about me. I'm not like talking about one of these people, yeah. but I don't understand why they, they have such a bone to pick with, with companies that do instill that in their culture. It's not like you're forcing anyone to join you, you know, like, do you have a theory on why? Cause it isn't work for someone else's lifestyle. And you need to say it doesn't work for anyone's lifestyle. Are you in that conversation at all? Everyone. Yeah. It's interesting. When like someone says, you work too much. I'm like, it doesn't feel like work. If I was playing basketball all day, would you call it you work too much? No, you're playing basketball. All, you play basketball too much, which doesn't have that negative connotation that comes with the word work. I think in like China, it's more of like factory farms and you're sitting there like twisting the screwdriver all day, which is a bit painful. Whereas us, you can work from anywhere. You get nice perks and benefits. You get unlimited vacation, which you take vacation, you want to take vacation. No one really cares. Just get your work done and be responsible around it. Um, it I think like that. It's a weird thing in our culture. I'm really honest. Like, uh, in no, people get criticized for working too much because they assume all these things come with that. Like, you are neglecting family, friends, maybe even health. Um, but there is a balance, and you could just be obsessed with what you do. And actually, with athletes or with musicians, they're not criticized, which is BS that we're criticized because it's the same thing. It's a it's a form of art, like, and uh, it's creating something. I don't know. I don't like it because I do get criticized all the time about it. I don't really care because uh, I love it. But I feel it as the same thing. You're not going to criticize Kobe Bryant for practicing a lot of basketball. You're going to criticize someone who's starting to start it for working a lot, though. You feel yeah, that too? A, oh yeah. Well, a hundred percent. I mean, if I looked at my if I looked at my calendar, I mean, which which I am. I I did my first podcast at seven o'clock this morning. I'm doing my last podcast at eight thirty tonight, and. Uh, I'm like not it's and I'm not thinking oh god like today is such a it's just like a grind I mean it is a grind but you're totally right like this is this is my game this this is your game just like my like basketball is their game and I I just I feel like there could be some element maybe this could be out of bounds here but it could be some element of like jealousy and that like they wish they knew they had something they love so much that they could work 13 hours a day on it um and because they haven't found it, they like, I don't know. That might be kind of like bad to say, but I think there's some truth there. Like they haven't found the thing yet. I don't know. There, there, I think there is truth to not finding the thing. I think there is truth to all the statements of like, 
if you work X amount of hours, you are neglecting something by default. And so if that's like a kid or like a wife, that's not a good thing in life, like objectively. But um, there's a certain, you could have both. Like instead of spending the extra three hours watching Netflix or watching the NFC Championship, whatever game is on this weekend, just do that, spend that time grinding away. Um, it's true. Like I, on the West, West Coast is brutal, by the way. I don't know if I could live for long term. Like I need to wake up at five to for be on Eastern time phone calls. Most of my phone calls start at eight. And then I'm working till like nine every day. So it's like five to nine. And like, I'm here for a few months. And so it is what it is. Uh, like I'm not, t- I'm not tired. I'm like physically tired. I'm like wiped. Uh, but when I wake up the next morning, I am so energized to go at it and grind and win that day. Um, it's, like, it's like standing on, after you go to the gym and you run really fast or you work out your arm, it's like tired, but you're not upset about that tire. It's not like a drowsiness. It's like that type of feeling. Sort of like it. Yeah. Well, I I agree with everything you're saying. Unfortunately, I took about a week and a half ago, I took a step in the camp of watch Netflix, not because it's Netflix, but because I got Oculus Quest like two days ago. And it's literally, (laughs) it is the greatest. I mean, okay, it's definitely a time suck, like 100%. Luckily, I'm not working on like, like I have my job and I have my podcast. There's nothing that's like dire. I don't have investors, et cetera. And like do what I need to do with my job. But holy shit, man. Like, I feel like I'm not even kidding. I feel like VR could potentially like fuck up this work so much thing. Cause it's so freaking fun. Have you, have you ever done, it's just totally like left field here, but I'm just kind of curious. Like, have you ever done any VR, Oculus, HTC, any, any of that stuff? I've done VR. I am blessed to not enjoy it. And I'm blessed That's, to have you are. <laughs> uh, a small amount of interest, which is like my wife and my dogs and books. And like, I like some sports and like, that's it and work. Uh, I feel like those formulas allow me to like work this much. Otherwise I'd be in trouble. <laughs> See, for me, I, so my interests are work, which I categorize as Prenda and my podcast, uh, my girlfriend, my, 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 fr- my friends that I have, my few friends. And like, Right now, I'd say the only additional thing is is reading and I guess now VR, but I'm similar to you where like, I don't want to do that at seven or that book club at five. And I just like have a lot of time that I haven't allocated to other things. So yeah, I spend my time, you know, grinding and working. But as you mentioned, you know, it doesn't feel like work. So I feel like, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like if you're listening, you're like, don't work 12 hours. It's like, well, we're not working 12 hours. We're having fun for 12 hours and also doing what we do what we do anyways um kind of changing topics um is there any is there any like thing that you've learned about yourself in the last two years maybe since you started h1 i also want to get to the name in a second um or just since you've been in entrepreneurship what have you learned or the biggest thing that you've learned since you've gotten started in this career about myself or about a company about yourself um or actually no let me back up any anything that just pops into your head that you've learned, it could be about a market, it could be about yourself, it could be about business models. I'd love to just hear any learnings you have in any category since you've gotten started in entrepreneurship. Yeah, so um, I guess the first thing that pops in my head is related to the name of the podcast, Founders. I learned that you could be a, a different type of founder and not one type of founder is there's no one founder to success. You don't need to be a technical founder. You don't need to be a sales founder. You don't need to be a product founder. But if you're just the type of person who has a passion and a dream and has conviction and charisma, you'll be fine. You'll make it work. And the rest doesn't really matter. 
And that's true across everything. Airbnb's startup founder is Brian and Joe. They're designers. Uh, Facebook is tech. Elon is tech. I'm not tech. I'm more like sales and fundraising and client and business. Uh, and so I, I've met so many different types of founders. Some of them are like hardcore techies. Some of them are just not at all, but they created like a super tech related startup. And so those of you that are looking to start startups, doesn't really matter what you are. Just find people that complement what you're not. I learned a lot about like what I'm very, very bad at. I'm like very, very bad at so many things. Um, I'm very, very good at those certain things. And I just do those things a lot. And then we hire people to do those other things. Uh, same for Ian. Like we, we just hire around us, fill up, fill up the team. Uh, that's one of the biggest things I've learned a lot. It's that like, I, I don't need to stay up at night trying to learn code. There's hire someone who knows it a lot better than I'll ever know in my entire life and is more passionate about than I am. That's the big thing that I learned. One question going back mm -hmm. to the hi the hiring point because um, it's just popped up. So if you need to, let me ask you one question for context. For on your founding team, would you say there's any gap of knowledge like design or ops or like where would you say just one gap as an example because it will lead to my next question. We had a gap in technology until we hired our VP of engineering, who's a superstar. So how, cool, perfect. So you had a gap in technology until you hired a superstar VP of engineering. How did you know that they were the person if you had that gap of knowledge, AKA like how'd you hire someone in a realm that you may not understand that well? We, by the way, I had three before who all failed. No one lasted more than six months before this guy for what it's worth, so. A lot of failure, that's the first thing. Second thing is it came from a referral. Ian worked with him for 20 years before, and that was, and he, uh, his company got bought and et cetera. And so it, it, we got really good there, uh, really lucky. We were struggling though, because it was the hardest thing. Like I could hire anyone related to sales, finance, customer success, branding, design, product, pretty well. Ian can hire anything related to data. We sucked at engineering. We got lucky with a couple hires that we made of like engineers, uh, went through a lot, but we got lucky with timing when it came to his VP of engineering. So it goes back to that work with someone within your network, network. or someone, yeah, to network. Because the thing about that, especially for, yeah, yeah sorry. It's, it's for gaps, where, it, do it for gaps that you have no idea if you, how to judge it. Because you're right, it's impossible. I, I can't even see it. I don't know if it's black or yellow. I don't even know what it is. There's been this thing that I've been thinking about that I'm going to, I've never brought it up on a podcast before, but like we, it's come up now enough in this one that I want to try to figure it out. So like, there's this analogy I've always been trying to make, which is when you make like just analogies in general, like this is going to sound left field, but it is relevant. Like we are Uber for cat walking. I'm just, that's a random example, Uber for cat walking or Uber for dog walking. What, what that does is it, takes people's understanding of what uber does and like that and ever like you know what the app is the connecting and then applies it to something else and it's like a quick understanding um and like in your case you could potentially describe yourself maybe if you wanted to as like crunch base for doctors or something like that what if you if you know the answer to this what program programmatic or like term does that use is that like using a function to, I know you're, I know you're not techie, so maybe you're the wrong person like to ask this, but but in taking that to programmatic terms, it's like an object that you relate to something else, which then automatically makes someone understand like an opaque um, topic. When in this case, when you don't know someone, but someone from your network knows them and trusts them, you automatically trust them. Do you have an idea on what that what that 
kind of connects to in programming or technology? Kind of a random question. I'm just curious if you know. No, it's, it, it's interesting because it's so true. Um, Paul Graham has a good essay about this of like, we humans think in like concepts and it's easy for us to think and relate concepts that we know to concept, concepts that we don't know. So I could easily say we're Crunchbase meets LinkedIn meets PitchBook for healthcare. Um, okay, everyone who knows any of those things has a good sense without me saying anything else. They're like, okay, I know what you do. Um, I don't know what it is uh, related in tech world, but that concept's so true. We're like, I think one of the reasons why all of our hires fail is because when you speed date, it's easy to assess skills. Like it's easy to assess, and speed date meaning recruit <laughs> someone that you don't know. It's easy to assess like if they could design well, just give them the designing thing, look at their portfolio. It's easy to see if they could code well, do a coding challenge. But you can't assess if you're actually gonna like working with them and they fit into your culture. But you could if there are someone's in your network. And that's like been the biggest learning lesson for us. Like that's the biggest gap. If someone's not a culture fit, they're not gonna fit in because our culture is so unique in the way that it is, I think. Yeah, I like that. I think I'm going to spend some time after this uh, figuring out what the program programmatic term is for like figuring out a term. Oh, oh something to, to, to almost like, uh, I don't know, just be able to explain that better because I feel like I, I can't do it. Anyways, we have a couple more minutes and I have two more questions left for you. Uh, second to last question is the name. I'd love to hear uh, where does the name come from? Why do you name it each one? Yeah, so Picking a name is a very heated topic, by the way. I don't, did you have those discussions in your first in your company? No, I picked the name. I saw I was a solo founder, then added on a founder later, and I th- and I oh, thought it was so like you're, you picked it up front. Yep. Oh yeah, so I, I, imagine, I I'm a, I'm a name guy. I do pick them up front usually, but I love to hear your story. So ours was hard because I was in a room with five other guys, and we were all incredibly passionate about different names, and like. From there, a name is, so you optimize on a few things. Is it easy to spell? Is it easy to say? Is it going to be good for SEO? The rest is subjective. Nothing else subjective about it. So once you get all those three things away, all right, now what are the names? Well, I like this because of this. I like this because of this. So we had like, I think it was one afternoon where I sat in a, in a conference room for like six hours going heated back and forth discussions. So it ended up, I ended up making the final call. It was a good decision, I think. I think it's a good name. H1 is a good name. So for, for a few reasons, one is my wife's name is Helena. Helena one is nice. Second one is healthcare, healthcare one. And then the third one is if you're conducting an experiment and you're publishing in a scientific journal, if your hypothesis is true, then it's the statistical representation is H1. If your hypothesis is not true, it's H0. So we're like, oh, it's null hypothesis, the true hypothesis. So all those ended up willing, winning off. And then we thought, oh, we could do cool things like H1 elements and H1 carbon and H1 oxygen or like H1 whatever. That's how, but a very difficult decision. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I like that. Um, actually, it gives me, I, I want to sneak in one more question before the last one. So forget about what the company does. When you hear that, I'm going to run a name by you. It's a pretty ridiculous name, but I want to, I want your, I want your thoughts. What are your thoughts on a company name called Eureka Blast? Eureka Blast? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a sexual name. Uh, probably has to do with something in the sex industry. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. That's good feedback. I, uh, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not serious about starting from here right now, but I am tooling around with some stuff. And I'm, I'm just, what is the, what is the actual thing? What is it? Well, it, it's in the recruit. Like, it, it could be a couple of things, but but I'm definitely interested in the recruiting space. But on like a higher level, like the human capital space, like humans as undervalued resources and assets, like just that doing something with that. I feel like I know a lot of people that no one else knows. And like, I want to help them and connect and 
obviously it's a very, 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 very early stage idea, but I'm interested in that stuff. Cool. That's my yeah. uh, quick, uh, don't take my feedback. I'm not an expert on names or brands. Or whatever. Oh no. Well, I know it's a ridiculous name. I honestly just want, I, I <laughs> but that's kind of why I like it. Well, I know, we'll see. We'll see what happens in, uh, in, in whenever I start. Anyways, the last question is you're building an awesome company. You're, you're growing quickly, but you could always use, uh, you can always use help. Um, just like anyone can use help with their company. Um, so my question to you is what is something that the forward thinking founders community can do to help you on your journey? What's an ask you have for the community? Um, if you know, the best salesperson you know, the best customer success person you know, the best designer you know, the best engineer you know, the best founder that you know, tell them about us. And if they're not working on their own startup, put them in contact with me. My email is ariel.cast at h1insights.com. I will respond uh, if it's not like spam. Uh, we want the best people. Like All we are is just like a compilation of people working towards one goal together. And the better the person is, the better the group of people are, the faster we'll get there, the better we'll get there, the better products we'll build, better services we'll build. Uh, and that's all that matters right now. Um, and so I just want the best people to come work with us because we have the best people and you'll experience that here. That's, that's a big ask. Anyone just email me, I'll respond. Boom. I like it. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. You are a wealth of knowledge and uh, best of luck growing H1 and uh, keep it up. It's awesome stuff. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, good meeting as well. Thanks for reaching out. Good talk.